0: Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. I am back in yes. the midst of recovery. Back and better than ever. Well, not yet. But You'll will be, be better than Yeah, knee replacement. Mm-hmm. I am uh, recuperating and feeling good and getting a lot of help. And Mrs. Bennett's been a great nurse. I'm sure. Claude, you've been a lot of help. Thank yes. you. And uh, welcome back to the podcast. This is the podcast that translates Donald Trump to the degree that he needs translation. Sometimes it's more plain than it needs to be. We take an honest look at the current administration, and we talk about the existential threats to America. Joining me today is Charles Murray. Charles Murray is the F.A. Hayek, Emeritus Chair in Cultural Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. We're going to talk about his new book, Human Diversity, the Biology of Gender, Race, and Class. Well, Charles, there you go again. He did the bell curve. And right. Started up a, a lot. Beehive, of, yeah. and now we got mm-hmm. another beehive, but this is a good place to talk about it. Okay. Uh, I want to... You know, I'm going to be brief because we're going to talk to Charles. We're going to read a lot of emails. I don't have much to offer here. There are two big stories out there, the coronavirus, which Mm -hmm. I know nothing about. Neither do I. Yeah. Just, you know, I listen and learn. I'm not going to step in here. The person I like and trust the most on this is Anthony Fauci. Okay. Right here in D.C., and he's on all the time, uh, National Institutes of Health. And um, he says we're at very low risk, so he says that. Fine. very low risk. (laughs) Okay. Because he's a pretty careful guy.
1: Right. He's a good scientist.
0: The other story, of course, is impeachment, and uh, there I'll yield to, good Lord. I mean, I would think, there's all sorts of arguments for ending this thing, but I think that the one that's, to be the most honest, that most people would go along with is, it's so boring. Right. Well, yeah. Endless repetition. Endless repetition. And I mean, we know where the sides stand. Let's just go. Let's just vote. Let's get this over with. Otherwise, I tend to yield to my professor, Ellen Dershowitz, who's been making arguments there. Did you watch him at all? I did. Yeah, he's good. He's good. He's Mm -hmm. good. He's fiery. Boy, he is attacked by the left, too. They don't like him. But, you know, we know how this will turn out in the end end, which is uh, the president will be acquitted. And my grounds are the same, as you have heard, ladies and gentlemen, my grounds for defending the president is even if these allegations are true, they do not rise to the level of an impeachable offense. The republic is not in danger. Because the president said, let's look into the 2016 election. And that means look into Joe Biden. Uh, if he had mixed motives, wanted to see, you know, if he could scar Biden for 2020. And he also wanted to find out, you know, the degree to which dirty hands were involved in 2016. That's, that's fine. I mean, uh, you know, uh, that's mixed motives. And you can't impeach him for that. Presidents do an awful lot of things that are self-interested out there in foreign policy. Mm. And that, uh, you know, we remember famous uh, Barack Obama saying to Medvedev, you know, just uh, tell Vladimir Putin, right. you know, wait, you know, have more flexibility. So, you know, there's this, even if there is a quid pro, pro quo, there's not enough there to impeach. And I, this thing will be over and it'll be forgotten unless the Democrats decide to bring up more articles of impeachment, which they might. They may decide that's their calling in life. We're
1: not the Congress anymore. We're the impeachment party. Right, right. Well, I wonder, could you, could you... Also, can't have one without the other. I mean, is, is it possible for the Democrats to look at this and say, all right, you know, will it will we're focusing in on whether or not President Trump uh, asked uh, the president from Ukraine to look into this Biden investigation? But suppose they say, OK, yeah, he did. Then wouldn't it make sense also to look into the Biden investigation? Like, is there anything there, too? Because how do you stop short of doing yeah, that? Right. No, absolutely. You would almost have to do both. Although they don't seem interested in doing... Uh, yeah, and the glaring thing
0: is we have videotape of Joe Biden mm-hmm. saying, you know, unless they call off this investigation of this company in which my son has been employed very lucratively, mm-hmm. they're not going to get this billion dollars from the U.S.
1: Isn't that... That's that's proof
0: of what they're claiming the president. This is a real quid pro quo. Exactly. Yeah. This is a
1: real thing. Real self-interest. I don't know why he gets a buy on this. It's outrageous. <laughs> it's outrageous. It's crazy. It's crazy. Well, it what it, it it it's the in in some ways it's the it's the basketball player or football player that gets thrown out of the game for reacting, but the player who caused the reaction doesn't get kicked out of the game. Good. Except in this analogy, the ref sees both and just chooses to yeah kick the guy out who the one, reacted. The one, is blatant. one right. is blatant, right? Exactly. It's like the first player
0: knocks the other guy, you know, you know, on his butt, you know, with a elbow right second player gets up and pushes him and the ref float, throws a
1: flag because the situation you're trying to increase the precedent for doesn't happen if the first situation doesn't happen and it's ambivalent
0: it's, it's, it's ambiguous mm-hmm. i should say and it's the biden story uh the press conference where he says they got five hours or six hours or three hours it's not ambiguous at all right <laughs> not at all i don't know all right. I don't get it. All right. Anyway, that's all I got to say about that. And we have emails. Yes. Uh, fascinating from uh, people and different things. And I love that first one there, Claude. Um, the title or subject is
1: A New Knee. New right. Knee. Right.
0: <laughs> and then without any further mention of New Knee, the email
1: says the following. Claude will read it to you. Uh, it says, Boil frozen vegetables, don't steam them. Uh, The secret is to uh, good flavored cooked vegetables is to add just one-fourth teaspoon of sugar, four calories, to the boiling water before adding the frozen vegetables. You won't taste the sweetness, but what the sugar does is it restores the fresh-picked flavor lost in the processing of the vegetables. It even enhances the flavor of uh, fresh-picked vegetables. Also, it enhances the flavor of vegetables in a stew, the vegetables seem to have an affinity uh, for the sugar. That's from Arthur uh, Ballard, was, the, the, was okay. the Who is this from? Uh, Arthur Ballard. Was
0: this for me? Yes. Uh, and, and the subject was knee. That's <laughs> about, as he's saying, for my knee, I should have sugar in my vegetables.
1: That's what I think he's saying. Okay. Like For recovery, it's probably healthy to, or maybe even in general, just healthy to.
0: I have the feeling with Arthur, it may be no matter what the ailment. <laughs> you know, it's like your coaches in high school. You know, you had an ailment. They said, just put some tough skin on it. Yeah, yeah. Rub some dirt on it. Rub some dirt. Yeah. So yeah, rub some dirt on it, or rub, or rub some spray some tough skin on it. Mm-hmm. I have a stomach ache. We'll spray some tough skin on your stomach. So anyway, thanks, Arthur. You might clarify that for us.
1: Sure. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Okay. Go ahead. Next
1: one. Uh, next email is from Philip Carl, who, by the way, uh, seems to work at a. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway, uh, company, workplace sales East. Uh, He says, love your podcast on an episode several months ago. You mentioned the three principles to productive dialogue and discussion. I believe the first principle was candor. The second was intelligence. I think unsure on the third, can you assist and provide, uh, or verify the third principle? Yes. Who's this from? Uh, J. Carl. Philip. Yeah, Philip. Uh, yeah.
0: It's the three conditions of good dialogue according to uh, Plato, Socrates. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this is gleaned from a variety of sources in Plato's dialogues. The three conditions of good dialogue are uh, intelligence, candor, mm-hmm. and goodwill. Right. Goodwill doesn't mean necessarily you like the person you're debating with, but goodwill means you will abide by the conclusions of the argument. Mm mm-hmm. um, Intelligence, muster whatever you can. Candor, tell the truth. Goodwill means we'll go where the argument leads. Right. We'll go where the argument leads. We're not ideologues. We're philosophers. The ideologue always is with you or opposed to you because he's an ideologue. He makes up his mind ahead of time, whatever the facts, <laughs> whatever the argument. <laughs>
1: right. Philosopher bases, bases it on the argument. That's what it should be. All okay. right. Good. From Philip J. Carl, regional vice president, workplace sales East from Court, a Berkshire Hathaway company. Nice. Thank Atlanta, you felt, Georgia. Yeah, yeah. My class people listen to the show. You? Mm-hmm. There you go. Uh, Leonard Blake uh, emailed in. I wonder says, if Arthur works for a vegetable company. <laughs> or maybe sugar. <laughs> Seems like it. <laughs> go ahead. Uh, so uh, we've got another uh, email from Leonard Blake. It says, your discussion with Amity Slays on excellence reminded me of a Vince Lombardi quote. It says, perfection is not attainable, but if we chase perfection, we can catch excellence. He says, thank you so much for your podcast, except the ones about sports don't care. Although he's quoting Vince Lombardi. Yeah. Who, you know, yeah. famous football coach, but he doesn't like the sports podcast. Yeah. <laughs> We well, the have,
0: have some puzzling listeners, as he's yeah. being demonstrated
1: this morning. Very complex, which is fine. We like it. Uh, he says, I listen every Saturday morning, and they always stimulate me to do more research and reading about the issues, personalities, uh, and books discussed. My only regret is that they uh, have come so late in my life. I included additional Lombardi uh, quote and uh, a link for the source. All right, we've we'll got a couple of Lombardi quotes. They're, they're worth it, I think. Yeah, uh, he says, uh, it's easy to have faith in yourself and have discipline when you're a winner, when you're number one. What, you, what you've what you got to have is faith and discipline when you're not a winner. Okay. Uh, we run to win, not just to be in the race. Yep. If you aren't fired with uh, enthusiasm, you'll be fired with enthusiasm. <laughs> uh, that's good. <laughs> that's really good, right? That's good. Uh, once you learn to quit, it becomes a habit. Uh, the only place success comes before work is in the dictionary. That's great. Yeah, this is really good, right? Uh, it doesn't matter who wins or loses. Then why do we keep score? Why do they keep scores? The actual um, quote. Uh, and also, confidence is contagious. So is lack of confidence. Good. Yeah, it's a good quotes, right? Yeah, it's good. You can post these on 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 your Facebook page, and we'll tweet them out. Good. That's yeah, a good idea. That. Right, fine. That's fine. That's good. Because right, he sent twenty one of them. But he's not interested in football. <laughs> he's not interested in sports. Not, when you talk sports, he doesn't like it. But he's got all, all right, well, he liked
0: Lombardi because he talked
1: philosophy. Yeah.
0: Fair enough. That okay. must be what it is, right?
1: You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett
0: show. All right, let's welcome Charles Murray to the show. Uh, he is the F.A. Hayek Emeritus Chair in the Cultural Studies at the American Enterprise Institute and author of the new book, Human Diversity, the Biology of Gender, Race, and Class. Hi, Charles. Hi, Bill. How are you? Good. Happy New Year.
2: Happy New Year to you.
0: All right. Let's jump in. Uh, we have not gotten the book yet. We haven't received the book yet, but uh, I really look forward to reading it. The, the, the teaser materials, these materials you sent me, uh, are very uh, enticing, very interesting. <laughs>
2: and I just well, uh, it, it's a long slog. It's 500 pages.
0: That's all right. I... Uh, First of all, is the, I, I know you're doing a dispassionate, thoughtful, objective analysis, but you know these are hornet's nests,
2: right? Well, when I got into the book, I assumed that it would be, and I still assume there will be some, uh, you know, very negative pushback. The fact is, I don't say anything in the book that should be that controversial. There are no bombshells. There are no, uh, you know, dread things that I'm revealing that never nobody ever knew before. I'm really saying things like, well, guess what? Men and women are different, you know, and some of some of the ways in which they are different are biological. And I'm saying as well that uh, uh what we call races and I'm perfectly happy with those people who say the word race uh, is is obsolete. But ethnicities and races are, are genetically distinctive. That doesn't mean they're wildly different. It, it just is that race is not entirely a social construct. So that kind of thing should not be controversial. But let's face it, gender, race, and class kind of automatically are. Yeah,
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the interesting things, but I should back up, uh, as, as I said in the formal introduction, we're talking to Charles Murray about his new book, Human Diversity, the Biology of Gender, Race, and Class. It struck me just in reading these materials that, as you point out, these are extremely interesting and exciting times in science, in breakthrough concepts about who we are, how we work, how we function, uh, the relationship between uh, our, our biology and our and our and our behavior. At the same time, you're doing this at a time in history when there is a kind of uh, um, insistent um, ideology about these topics. That is, that gender is a social construct. So, I mean, I, I don't know that it's ever been stronger. The latter, in terms of the insistence yep. in some quarters. At the same time that all this science and, uh, and creativity is opening up um, new areas of exploration and giving us more depth on these questions. That's really
2: what got me into this, that, that okay. uh, on the one hand, I was fascinated by the new developments in genetics, especially, but also neuroscience. And for you know, I don't want to get too nerdy about social science, but the fact is that some of the things that, that we're learning through genetics will give us tools that will enable us to answer questions we've never been able to answer before. So that's very exciting. We should be excited. And yet you go out and talk to uh, people in the academy, and they are not excited, and on the contrary, uh, a lot of them are simply scared stiff of this new knowledge because uh, it talks about biology. (laughs) And people have been scared stiff of biology and social sciences for the last century. Right.
0: Let's let's take the the first um, for part one. Gender is a social construct. That's in quotes. People say
2: gender is a social construct. Not so, you say. Tell us. It's partly a social construct. Okay. Let, let me let, let me give an example. You have uh, something like uh, oh, let's say the the fact that uh, women are not in science and technology occupations as much as they should be should be in quotes, uh, relative to males, okay? Is that because women have been kept out of uh, of science and technology artificially? And the answer through the 1960s was yes. Uh, Medical schools would only accept a certain proportion of applicants who were women, because they said, well, they're just going to go out and get married and quit the profession. Same with law schools. Same with a variety of other things. So was there an artificial barrier that had nothing to do with women's abilities? Yes. Now, what happened subsequently? You had (laughs) graduate schools in science and technology became desperate to have women because with the rise of feminism, it became a big, big deal. And you saw a response during the 1970s. Women did move into fields that they had formerly not been in and not been in in such large numbers. Then what happened? Around 1990, there was a new equilibrium. And since 1990, the proportion of women in these fields has been pretty steady. Now, what do the feminists say? They say, oh, the patriarchy is still uh, ruling. Well, there's another possibility, which is that women are, for biological reasons, much more interested in vocations that involve people then they are vocations that involve things. And there is a very strong, bio, strong case to be made that that is biologically grounded. Now, I have to jump in here because as soon as you say it's biologically grounded, the question is, do I mean that it's determined genetically? No. Do I mean that there are not women who are as fascinated by physics and mathematics as guys are? There are absolutely such women. But if you talk about tendencies, I argue in the book with a lot of evidence that the reason we see these imbalances in science and technology has a very simple explanation that uh, the interests of men and women are somewhat different.
0: Well, for even suggesting that there might be different interests, it was the president of Harvard who got himself kicked uh, kicked out, right, for even right. suggesting this. So, I mean, again, again I, I underscore that this is a... A very uh, very hot topic, particularly particularly in our times. You mentioned yeah. stabilization after the sixties, uh, that the things opened up, and then when we got into the sciences, then stabilization. You suggested as reflected in percentages. Do you have, do you have those percentages? Do you, can you give us some
2: idea what those percentages no, are? Not off the top of my head, uh, but I'll tell you the most interesting. Okay. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, study that's in the book is one that focuses on children who were part of a program I'm sure you're familiar with from the old days as Secretary of Education, the uh, study of mathematically precocious youth that came out of Baltimore. And what makes this study so wonderful is it gets us completely away from any arguments about our guys smarter than gals and that kind of thing because everybody in those samples was in the top 1% in mathematical ability. Well, they have been followed up now so that the, these people are in their mid to late 40s. Were these the Johns Hopkins kids? Yeah, the Johns okay. Hopkins kids. Okay. Uh, the Stanley's kids. Right, right. <laughs> So, so you have these incredibly talented women in math, but the proportion of those women who went into so-called STEM courses—science, technology, engineering, and math—the ratio of males to females in that study was just the same as it is in the population as a whole. Guys were more interested in physics uh, than than women were, even though the women were perfectly able uh, to get a degree in physics if they felt like it. And here's the thing I find almost funny it turns out that when males have really really high mathematical ability they tend not to be that great in verbal ability when women have really high mathematical ability they also have again it's tendencies they also tend to be extremely talented in verbal So, so what you have is the guy's Basically, if they're really talented in math, of course they go into STEM in high proportions because that's what they're good at. With women, yeah, they could go into STEM courses if they wanted to, but you know they can also go out and become a, a lawyer and become a partner and make seven figures a year. They can also go into all sorts of other management occupations. They have very talented women in math, basically, are more likely to have a choice than than
0: the men are uh, the l- let's take the Hopkins kids. I'm, I'm just curious I'm looking I'm looking for numbers again, I know, uh, but uh, I have a reason. Um, when they did these math programs, were there equal numbers of uh, men and
2: women, boys and girls? No, there were not. okay. Uh, there is you know when you talk about differences in abilities, There are women have certain strengths on average in verbal abilities, in many kinds of memory, and in what we call social cognition. On average, they are higher than males. In terms of male advantages, it's primarily in what is called visual spatial skills, uh, which is a, it seems like an abstract thing, but in fact, very high visual spatial skills are highly correlated with math ability. So that that advantage of males in visual spatial skills translates into a higher proportion of males at the extremes of mathematical ability, and that's true today as it was 40 years ago.
0: Are we talking about two to one, three to one in this program, or two to one? It
2: depends on on how far you go out, Bill. Okay. So that well, let's take it at at the end. Let's take it at the
0: end in terms of careers in the STEM STEM. Either one, either one. Give me any numbers.
2: Yeah, yeah. Just yeah, just to give because I don't want to give a wrong impression. Right. If you take male and female SAT scores, then uh, there's a pretty small difference. If you if you then get to something like this this math test, the FMC. and Now I can't remember what it stands for. It's a difficult math test which is given to uh, optionally to high school seniors, and there you've got a ratio of seven or eight to one. Because now you're not talking about the top 5% in math. You're talking about the top portion of the top percentile. And so there the, the ratio gets quite large.
0: Uh, in the, because of our time constraints, we may not get to, to, to race and, and class, but maybe we can have future interviews on that. I want to delve deeper into this gender as a social construct claim and, and the argument against it. You said that biology here... Is it the root of these differences? Can you unpack that for us a little
2: more? Sure. Um, Everybody knows about testosterone, you know, as a hormone which circulates and is associated with aggression and so forth. Uh, But what very few people in the general public know is that testosterone has another function. Prenatally, at two different times prenatally and in the first few months after birth, Males have a testosterone surge which uh, which bonds with neurons in the brain, and particularly in the right hemisphere, and it's permanent. So those effects of testosterone don't come and go. The brain is permanently wired in, in ways, and, and uh, what happens with the testosterone that bonds with neurons in the brain is it tends to make male brains more efficient at communicating within hemispheres. And it makes female brains, or I should say, females who do not have that uh, effect of testosterone, have much more efficient communication between hemispheres. So it's uh, there are trade-offs. The, uh, <clears throat> the the trade-off for males' advantage is that it has a lot of firepower uh, going into the right hemisphere for visual spatial skills. The, the advantage for women is that uh, they can be much more resilient in the face of injuries and other things where if one half of the brain gets damaged, women can recover uh, much much more easily, much faster, and much more completely than men can. And that also probably is related, although I don't want to say this too strongly, to the rather conspicuous female advantage in memory, which I think probably listeners are going to recognize. Look, I don't know about you, Bill. My wife can remember exactly what happened with my daughter's third birthday.
0: Did you ever tell a story right that your wife didn't correct?
2: (laughs) No. no. (laughs) Me too. Essentially, you know, my experience is that my wife has sort of a complete textured memory of life for the last 30 or 40 years. Whereas with me, I can see occasional peaks coming above the fog, but uh, I have nothing like the same autobiographical memory which is the technical term for it so i hope that as people have listened to this they understand a i'm having to say some complicated things in a hurry and b the bottom line on this is men aren't smarter than women women aren't smarter than men they have different cognitive profiles
0: okay okay i want to come back to the hopkins and uh, the stem uh because the the reason i'm asking is and i won't press you on the numbers but You've got all sorts, as you know, Charles, you've got all sorts of colleges and universities out there saying, you know, we've got to have an equal number of, uh, you know, women in the physics department in the math department and the biology department. And yep. uh, biologically, that just doesn't make sense. Correct?
2: Yes, it doesn't make sense. And it, uh, and one of the reasons I wrote the book is to provide some support for people who say it doesn't make sense. You know, a good example here is among women who do go into STEM. Which of the sciences do they go into? They go in predominantly to biology. Once again, it's a it's it's a uh, a people-oriented thing, a living organisms kind of thing. We haven't said a word about evolutionary psychology here, but I would just point out this makes obvious sense. Women from the beginning have evolved. So that the only ones who survived were ones who nurtured children in infancy. Uh, That is not a sexist statement. It is that if a woman is to pass on her genes in an evolutionary setting, and she is a woman who really doesn't want to feed the baby when it cries at night, that woman is not going to pass on her genes. So you have had, uh, throughout evolutionary history, very strong evolutionary pressures for women to be really interested in the kinds of things which in the 21st century means they're more attracted to biology than they are to pure mathematics.
0: You and know, I have had this conversation before, but I was just thinking about Shakespeare and Lady Macbeth on Sex Me Here, she says. Um, and that's kind of a horrible, horrible figure she is, um, uh-huh. in, in all ways denying, mm-hmm. denying her
2: Nurturing instinct, can I say that? But I mean, yeah, you can. It's all right. You, you can say it to me, Bill, but okay. don't repeat it to anybody else.
0: Well, that's—I guess—that's what I mean. Yeah, I mean, you're—you're you're saying there's all this work, and it's all respectable and all smart, and the numbers add up. But—but but this stuff is going to hit some people like bombshells. I mean, it's just yeah. its just—it's uh, just going to explode.
2: And you know that, right? You've been warned about this. Yeah, uh, and I'm, I'm, that's one of the reasons I'm curious, because uh, my wife, who you, of course, know, Catherine, is a really smart woman, and she's also my editor. And she finished the section on uh, sex differences in the book, and she just sort of laughed and said, if anything, women look a lot better in your discussion than men do. So there is nothing... That should get people riled up, but I suspect it will.
0: Yeah, um, same thing. Just a time—we just have about eight, ten more minutes. But the same basic Caterus Paribus uh, conclusions when it comes to race and class—that there is a biological basis here.
2: It's a very different story for for race, uh, and, and we m- know much less about race differences than we know about uh, sex differences. <clears throat> what I, I use the uh, analogy with archaeological digs, you know, where archaeologists go out, they found a promising site. In the case of men and women, uh, the archaeologists have excavated the site. They know what the city looks like. They've got a lot of artifacts and we know a lot of stuff. In the case of race, uh, the geneticists have discovered a promising sites and they sort of sunk initial probes. And they know there's something down there, but they don't really know what it is here's here's the short the shorthand story. Race is a social construct, uh, initially got a lot of power from a scientific observation that humans had not left Africa long enough for there to have been large evolutionary changes that have taken place since leaving Africa. And that was true if you're talking about evolution by mutation. Since we sequenced the genome back in two thousand and three, it has been discovered that an awful lot of evolution can happen quite rapidly with what's called standing variation in the genome, and I'm not going to go into the weeds on that one, but simply to say that that it when you have a change in the environment, uh, there can be a response evolutionarily to that that happens re- relatively rapidly. We furthermore know, which we did not know in two thousand three, that uh, not only are people genetically distinctive in terms of Europeans and East Asians and Sub-Saharan Africans, it gets at a much more finer grain than that. Well, think about 23andMe or Ancestry.com, where a lot of the people listening have probably sent in saliva and gotten back uh, a report saying you were 46% Welsh and 36% Polynesian or whatever. Well, how can they do that? It's because these genetic patterns look different for different ethnicities. What does this mean in terms of observable traits? That's what we don't know yet. All right. Since we we have a short time, I want to jump to, I think, an important question I'm often asked. Why study this? And the answer is we have no choice because we already know that different ethnicities respond differently to medicines, uh, respond differently to other kinds of treatments. We are learning a lot more about the genetics of autism and ADHD and uh, schizophrenia and a whole bunch of other cognitive ailments and strengths and weaknesses. Well, in order to, to have appropriate medical treatment, For different ethnicities, you've got to study the different ethnicities. And so there will be very large samples collected genetically of all the major populations in the world. It's going to be done because it's ethically imperative to do so. But in the course of doing so, we're going to undercover whatever other distinctive features there are in personality and abilities and social behavior. There is nothing that's going to come out of this. That should send people screaming from the room. Uh, I think these, when these, when these discoveries come, the appropriate response is, "Well, that's interesting." Unfortunately, people are so insistent that there cannot be such dis- uh, differences that I'm afraid that will not be the response. Right,
0: right. And I'll be watching um, with great interest. Are you going to take this to Middlebury?
2: Yeah, you heard that I'm going back there, right? I did not. Are you going back? <laughs> yeah, I I've, I got an invitation to go there again. It was arranged by the Young Republicans and the administration, and I was astonished that the invitation came. But I said yes, so I'm going to Middlebury on March 31st. Wow, security guaranteed. <laughs> Uh, I am told that there will be an extensive security right. <laughs> effort when right. I go there, and well, I, I'm uh, I'm happy to hear that. Good for you. Good uh, for you. I, I shouldn't laugh, Bill, because I think I think it's a very good thing that Middlebury has asked me back. Yeah. I hope it goes off, and as it should, which is you have a social scientist, who's fairly nerdy social scientist, who's going to come and give a standard social science lecture, And people will listen to it, agree or disagree, but it will be collegial and civil. I want to explore part three, because this is one where I
0: was kind of surprised. Class is a function of privilege. Well, sure it is, isn't it? I mean, don't don't the upper classes, you know, create the next upper class and their children and trust fund babies and don't upper classes breed upper class. What's that word? Homogamy? Uh. Well, don't, don't um, homogamy
2: contributes to that, too. That was your other book about... Uh, but, that, but you see, that's biological. Homogamy referring to true. people yep. marrying people like themselves. Right. Uh, so that uh, that's what's been increasing. So, yeah, is class partly a function of privilege? Yes, it is. But the thing is that you go back 100 years and you have, let's say it's the guy who makes the money, because 100 years ago it was the guy who made the money, and so he becomes uh, president of a large corporation, who did he marry when he was 20 years old? Because he did get married probably when he was 22, 23 years old. Well, he probably married the girl next door, or yeah. he married yeah. uh, you know, the, somebody who was randomly selected in some respects from the population. And who does he marry now? He probably marries a graduate from Yale Law School, Uh, who is uh, herself, you know, extremely able. And so what that means is, does privilege still play play a role? Yes, in the sense that if you're rich, you can give your kids money. But biology plays a role because if you have two really smart people who married each other and they had kids, they passed on their genes. So social class gets stickier than it used to be. Remember shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations, which used to be the you know, the the way of saying, yeah, somebody makes a lot of money, they give it to their kids, but by the time the grandkids have it, they've spent it all. Well, that doesn't work so often anymore because you're passing along ability along with the money.
0: So the answer is yes, in part,
2: it is. Yeah. And you can be more specific than that too, uh, because it's still true. Forget about, uh, People getting married and producing smart kids. Let's take the smart kid who uh, uh, is uh, going to school in some terrible urban area, but is, really has a lot of ability. Well, th- that youngster is much more likely to be successful monetarily and in other kinds of ways uh, now than he would have been 100 years ago as well. And that's good news uh, because we do a better job now of letting kids fulfill their potential. But what that also means is that ability is partly heritable. Okay. So is persistence. So is work ethic. So is self-discipline. So is conscientiousness. All of these personal qualities that go into achieving success in life have a genetic component. And the the, the, the net result is, now here I want to be careful not to exaggerate, this is not determinism. So, if you talk about any individual person, the the genetic role in determining success is modest. But if that's true throughout the whole society, that has profound effects on the class structure. The analogy I use there is uh, Las Vegas. Las Vegas makes millions of dollars, uh, even though their their percentage advantage on any one bet. It's quite small. (laughs) Once you've got millions of bets, you're you're making huge profits. Well, similarly, if you have a small genetic role in determining success in individual, so you have a very large effect on the nature of the social structure.
0: I want to come back just briefly um, to this because I just want to tell you, and again, again, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Well, maybe you don't know this, but as long as we've been running this podcast, which is a couple of years now, we've talked about a variety of topics, controversial. We always talk about Trump, which obviously creates a lot of controversy just by itself, just by the very mention of the name or the wearing of the hat. But, but in addition, other topics of all sorts. I don't think we've ever gotten a reaction like we did. I'm coming back to sex and gender constructs To the reports out of Connecticut, I believe it was first, with the boys and girls track meets where the boys declare their gender to be female and then yeah. cross over and <laughs> run in those track meets. You're the father of, you don't have to personalize, but you're the father, I think, of three three girls, one boy? Three
2: girls, three girls, one
0: boy. One boy. I mean, most of our audience was shocked by this. When I talked, I thought it was just horrible, most of the fathers of girls, but really almost everybody. But yeah.
2: um, it, 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 go it, ahead. It, you know what? The good news is, Bill, that it is such a clear case of people having taken leave of their senses. And and the good news here is that a lot of feminists at this point are also upset about this, saying, Come on, you cannot suddenly declare you're a woman. It doesn't work that way. And and so the trans phenomenon is in I, I have never seen so much attention paid to such a tiny proportion of the population. Yeah. yeah. Which is not to say that uh, that doesn't denigrate the human dignity or human worth of people who really are trans, but we're talking about a fraction of 1% who are genuinely uh, transsexual. And the way they dominate so many uh, political and, and social debates is, is crazy.
0: I was taken the other day shocked. to saw Joe Biden say that the uh, lgbtq is the civil rights issue of our time
2: yeah um you know i put this in a in an appendix because in in my book i'm talking about male female differences but this day and age where you say there are 64 genders sometimes or some such number i had to have a statement of the data about um L- lgbt um well i never get the initials right uh, questions and the fact is, despite all of the discussion—not just of trans, but of homosexuality and intersexuality and the rest of it—about 99 percent of all people are completely biologically male or female. <laughs> I mean, in, in a biological sense, more than 90 percent self-identify as heterosexual, and so if we 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 live in a world in which. If you go out and ask people in a Gallup poll, what percent of the population is gay and this the usual answer comes out about twenty two twenty three percent yeah the actual number is is closer to five to six um, yeah. it's 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 we we live in a very strange world which is divorced from reality, and when you get down to it, that was one of the motives for writing the book. I'm okay. trying to bring a little bit of sanity Good. uh back to some of the discussion of these topics.
0: Well, good luck and Godspeed, and thank you for this book, as for your other great work, uh, and uh, appreciate it, Charles, and uh, I look it's forward been to it. Thank you very much, okay. sir. Okay.
1: Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show.
0: Claude, let's just talk a little bit for a second. Uh, yes. We were just talking privately. Let's make it public. Charles is a brilliant man, but I, I don't know if he realizes the storm he's walking into.
1: He doesn't seem to. Uh, he thinks that, that there's no reason for anyone to get outraged what he wrote, but he's coming from a place of reason. He should know. He's the say. guy who wrote the
0: bell curve and right. said there were differences between the races. Mm-hmm. And now he's talking about, well, you know, sex is not a social construct, gender, right. and no, nor class. Uh, no race. So, uh, you know, he's, we'll see. Uh, but I mean, it's, I'm sure the book is, uh, as his other work has been done, uh, terrific and, and careful and thoughtful. And, uh, you know, I've known him forever. Uh, we had a real split on the Trump question. Right. So I'd provoke him when I mentioned the hat there. The hat.
1: <laughs>
0: but, uh, see, right. because the real Trump haters say the hat itself is a provocation. You know? Yeah, 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 right. But, but that aside, he's a brilliant man and an old friend, and um, I just, uh, you know, I'm glad he's stepping into it. My question now is, is, will the academy, which is the source of a lot of these things, like sex is a social construct, gender is a social construct, will the academy uh, just dismiss him, or will it take him seriously? Hmm. When the bell curve came out, they took him seriously, and there were serious debates and colloquies and seminars, and then they decided the easiest way to deal with him was just to ignore him. Right. I'm curious what happens uh, What happens huh. now. That's very interesting what he said about, you know, biologically, you know, more than 99% of us are clearly and emphatically male or female. Right, right. And his response to the uh, the very careful scholar here to the Connecticut track teams is some people have just lost their minds. <laughs> well, yes, Charles, but a lot of people have. right. And that stuff hasn't been
1: reversed yet as far as I know do you No 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 it seems like it's actually the other way around it's growing, it's growing. You know, yeah acceptance and uh, more adherence yeah exactly All right okay I,
0: I we need to pay more attention to our listeners mm-hmm. and so let's uh, let's go through a few more emails because it's been a while since we have responded to these emails.
1: Yes it has and by
0: the way let me take this opportunity to thank people for their patients. Mm-hmm. You know, we had some shows that we had pre-recorded. Sure. Yeah. Cause I had surgery mm-hmm. and, uh, people knee- want an update on the, on the surgery. How my left knee was replaced with a plastic or metal or something. I don't even want to know some kind of composite knee. And I am in uh, recovery doing physical therapy and it's a pretty quick surgery. Now it's like an hour and 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'm doing what I should be doing. Nice. But, um, yeah, I just uh, this time, unlike when I got my first knee replaced, Mrs. Bennett has had the decency not to say, well, since you did so well on that, maybe we should replace some other things. <laughs> not only has she been decent, she's been wonderful. Of course. F- of course. The, I was thinking of what Charles said about women in social relationships. Oh, yeah. And caring yeah, yeah, yeah. And so on. Mm-hmm. You want to see a woman at her best to take care of her husband, to take care of her child. You know, she's just been great. Any hour of the night, I say, boy, I need something. I need this, need that. And uh, it's funny, the care, the constant care that she's been exercising and attention has uh, even after 37 years brought us closer. Wow. Very sweet. Wow, Very nice. nice. Yeah. yeah. I'm not a good sleeper, though, now with this because there's pain. Yeah, sure. And former drugs are, I'm not going to get into that stuff. You know, they gave right me I'm not gonna get into that oxycodone stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh gave me a lot of pills too, but um, taking some some other things much milder. But uh, a lot of Tylenol six fifty. Uh this you know what this is gonna do? It's gonna stimulate more emails. Oh no, yeah. you do know, you know, yeah. I
1: know right. Which is fine. Tylenol six fifty, you wanna put sugar in your vegetables. Bill Bennett Podcast at gmail dot com. Speaking of sugar in your vegetables, uh that was Arthur's second email about things to eat with the knee. The first one says chocolate covered pretzels. They're low-calorie. Uh, he said pistachios, uh, the least of calories, one-third calories less than almonds. He says roasted half Brussels sprouts and broccoli. He also says lightly sprayed with veggie oil uh, gives them an irresistible nutty-like flavor, filling low-calorie, 400 degrees, 20 minutes. What is the subject of that email? Uh, the same as the other one. It says new knee. Salt. So, he doesn't mention that at all. He just knew me, and then he gives you. Uh, so, if like he were my doctor, and I got out of
0: surgery, and said, "What's the first thing I should remember?" He
1: would say
0: pistachios, chocolate covered pretzels, chocolate covered pistachios, roasted half nuts. All, all right, right, we have other emails, so well, I appreciate <laughs> Arthur. We yes. look forward to your next installment.
1: <laughs> right. Right. Uh, Melissa Hartman uh, emails and says, good morning and happy new year to you all. I was uh, just this morning catching up on podcasts and I was listening to the Christmas episode. Uh, She happens to mention she's also behind on the dog cast, but I choose you over football. Oh, I think the dog cast might be a University of Georgia Georgia thing. So we'll see. Uh, You were mentioning how Mrs. Bennett loves the choir at Midnight Mass, which made me think of this choir. This is the Notre Dame liturgical choir singing uh, the Holy Mary uh, in Russian, but pretty sure they're not spies. That's pretty funny, right? Sure. So if you look closely, you can see my Madeline uh, to the conductor's left with a white bow in her hair. A Second one from the front row. I know Mrs. Bennett will love the beautiful music. And if you want to hear it, you can always uh, get it on catholictv.com. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. We'll make sure we forward that. We had a beautiful now. wedding. Mm-hmm. Be- beautiful wedding, really. That was, yeah, it was great. It and we was, were there. Uh, oh, yeah, man. I mean, from the mass to reception to ringing in the new year with the.
0: Uh, For Catholics out there, something, the number of the Catholics who were at the wedding. I don't know if that includes you because you sometimes were a Catholic,
1: sometimes <laughs> you're not. <laughs> right. Early, early. Yeah, early. yeah. I mean, Catholic church,
0: Catholic but, schools. But uh was when uh, the bride and groom went over with flowers to the right. Mary, mm-hmm. the statue of Mary. Mm-hmm. Mary's very big deal. Yeah. And um, Mrs. Bennett, who's a convert to Catholicism from being a Methodist, said this is where the
1: church is really ahead of the game. Yeah.
0: With yeah. its uh, devotion to Mary. sure. Mother sure. of Jesus. Mm-hmm.
1: Go ahead. with a lot of the um catholic tradition even in the mass i remembered a lot of stuff and sierra was impressed she's never seen me in catholic form so oh really yeah she yeah. was impressed i don't know what to do some of the call and responses and up
0: down kneeling uh, mm-hmm. you know yeah. she followed you
1: uh yes i just you told her just watch me and you'll be
0: okay did she think you were like acting strange <laughs> claude what got into right? you the holy spirit yeah <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, man. All
1: right, this one from Leonard Blake. It says, Trump demonstrated American uh, capability and intention. Uh, this will likely reduce the prospect of war. Um, let's see, he says, basic cause of all war is a miscalculation uh, of the capabilities and or intentions of potential adversaries. So he says, World War II observations, Germany had met no opposition to early territorial expansion prior to 1939. They were surprised that England declared war on Germany when it invaded Poland. Germany doubted uh, the resolve and capacity of the USSR when it uh, commenced Operation uh, Barbarossa Barbarossa, uh, and invaded the USSR. Japan's Navy was superior to the U.S. Navy in 1941 and, quote, knew, uh, end quote, the U.S. was isolationist. No one had intervened with Japan's expansionism uh, in the Western Pacific China, Malay Peninsula, excuse me, Indonesia, Burma in its attempt to secure resources for its uh, well, uh, resource poor nation. let me interrupt. I
0: wonder if the thesis here might be more accurately portrayed as uh, wars are lost because of miscalculation. Ah, okay. Mm-hmm. He's right about uh, the Germans, um, you know, going to the Eastern Front there to Russia. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, Stalingrad, Leningrad were just, you know, just burying fields, just killing fields for Germans and Russians. Slaughter. Um, and, you know, he underestimated just what the cost would be. Mm-hmm. You can't roll over Russia like you rolled over Poland and, you know, Sudetenland and other places. Um, there are some people think if Hitler had avoided, if he had kept the uh, the pact with the, the Soviets, that uh, and, and avoided Going into into Russia, invading Soviet Union, Russia, that uh, he might have prevailed. Mm. He had just had the Western Front to fight Mm -hmm. England, France. Wouldn't have defeated the United States, but might have held them off indefinitely because you know we're a long way away. But um, yes, and I think that's right. I mean, we know after uh, Pearl Harbor, the Emperor said, "You know, I fear we've awakened a sleeping
1: giant." Mm -hmm. Miscalculation, right? That was a lot. That was a lot more. And that was to his point. He says, Axis powers did not realize how the at, attack at Pearl Harbor would mobilize opinion in the U.S. Yeah. It severely underestimated the productivity uh, and capacity of uh, Britain, U.S., and the U.S. Yeah, because the
0: isolationism was very real in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um and, and a lot of it remained associated right. with Charles
1: Lindbergh and others. Yeah. Yeah. And he brings it back to today. He says Trump's uh, strike was an attempt to demonstrate U.S. capability. They had been uh, tracking him for days, executed at pinpoint strike on a single vehicle without oh, hitting is, U.S. personnel. This is suleiman Right. Mm-hmm. Following his car uh, one half mile behind, Trump demonstrated the U.S. intention to not tolerate further escalation uh, by Iran. Yeah. No, I, that's right.
0: A little revising going on now there were some people hurt some American soldiers hurt some brain injuries and other things mm-hmm. but uh, no fatality as far as we
1: know right right that's uh, Leonard who lives in Cleveland good okay. I find Lenny okay. From Cleveland. okay okay well that's just a sample I mean we get we get a lot but right
0: yeah it goes from you know interesting hypothesis here about war and you know miscalculations in war to Recommendations about sugar. And
1: <laughs> yeah. Got to hear more from... A discussion about the dog cast.
0: The, dog, the dogs. It was that D-A-W-G? Yes. Yes, yeah, so at the University of Georgia. Yeah. It's a dead giveaway. All right, that does it for today's show. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to BillBennettShow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett. You can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's Bill Bennett podcast at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family and friends. We'll catch up next week.